Hello, my name is Josh Molina, and uh, I am recording the first episode of the Anxiety Book Club's monthly podcast. In this podcast, we read and review a book about mental health, specifically around the theme of anxiety. This month, we are reading and reviewing a book called Real Love by... Sharon Salzberg. Uh, Sharon Salzberg is a figure in the mindfulness and meditation community. Um, So the book is about mindfulness and self-love, which is interesting, but you might be wondering, wow, is this really related to anxiety? And I would say yes, it is, because when I did a... uh, sort of five-day silent retreat over New Year's, I found that a lot of my anxiety had to do with this inner critic that uh, was in my head filling my brain with doubts and uh, criticism. So I figured, hey, maybe if I rewire my brain and fill it with more love, uh, I'll have less anxiety. So, So I read this book. It's kind of a long book. It took me a while. I read it on my Kindle. It matters how we talk to ourselves. Right, so you might think, because I think that uh, there's a lot going on in our brains, and some of it is nice and some of it's not nice. I think, and maybe other people do, I have both, right? So I have voices in my head that tell me I'm great and amazing and good at stuff, Uh, but I also have voices in my head that tell me that I'm not great, that I am uh, not worthy we're not good enough in a number of different ways. And I think if you're not careful or not mindful about it, you can start to fuse your own thoughts, your own sense of self with this background of chatter. So if, if your background chatter is not sort of nice or comforting or kind, it's possible that you'll start to believe all the things it says about you and that might impact your self-worth. I think one of the primary theses maybe of this book or mindfulness in general is that even though we don't control our thoughts, they do condition us, they do impact us, our emotions, um, and even our actions. So, so perhaps if that is all true, if we change the way that we speak to ourselves, if we become more charitable, more compassionate, more loving, then maybe we'll see some real impacts in our life. Another, another idea that comes out of this kind of stuff is self-love is not necessarily something that we grow up with. And just to make it more personal, I can say that I did not grow up with it. I don't think that I had many people in my life who treated themselves very nicely. But on the other hand, in in the world of of friends and family and, and being socialized and wanting to be accepted and fit in in places like school and work, I think we are very good at being nice to others. Anyone to anyone who has ever had a friend knows that in order to keep those friends, most of the time you have to be nice to them. Be there for them and and be nice, right? So if you have a friend and 
he or she is having a hard time, you wouldn't say things to contribute to their suffering. You would say uplifting things like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry this is, this is happening to you. I'm sorry you are having a hard time right now. Things will get better soon. And look at all these great things you have to look forward to. And, you know, all, all good days and all bad days end. And this is no different. Right, so you would say nice things to them, right? That's what we do in relation to other people. It seems maybe, at least for me, like it comes more naturally to be nice to others than to ourselves. It's almost like, oh, I'm supposed to be nice to myself too? Let me just read a little bit from the book of what she says here. Most people who come to meditation are looking for respite from what is sometimes called the monkey mind. The perpetual, hyperactive, and often self-destructive whirl of thoughts and feelings everyone undergoes. But the truth is that meditation does not eradicate mental and emotional turmoil. Rather, it cultivates the space and gentleness that allow us intimacy with our experiences so that we can relate quite differently to our cascade of emotions and thoughts. That different relationship is where freedom lies. Right, so... We have all these thoughts, but maybe meditation gives us a little bit of space to see them coming and to choose whether or not to act on them, to trust them, how seriously to take them. So RAIN, she writes, is an acronym for a practice specifically geared to ease emotional confusion and suffering. When a negative or thorny feeling comes up, we pause, remember the four steps cued by the letters, and begin to pay attention in a new way. So, Okay, so what do we do? The emotions come, what do we do? R, recognize. It is impossible to deal with an emotion, to be resilient in the face of difficulty, unless we acknowledge that we're experiencing it. So the first step is simply to notice what is coming up. Suppose you've had a conversation with a friend that leaves you feeling queasy or agitated. You don't try to push away or ignore your discomfort. Instead, you look more closely. Oh, you might say to yourself, this feels like anger. Then this might be followed quickly by another thought. And I notice I am judging myself for being angry. Right, so you have a feeling. The first thing you're supposed to do is recognize it. A lot of times when we feel some powerful emotion, I know for myself, if I feel fear, I'll take it too seriously. I don't even sort of recognize it. I merely just respond. So you're encouraged here with the first step of rain to recognize it. Oh, I'm feeling fear. A lot of times when I feel a, dis a discomfort or an uncomfortable emotion, I'll say to myself, oh, okay, this is suffering. What's A? Acknowledge. The second step is an extension of the first. You accept the feeling and allow it to be there. Right? So a lot of feelings are not good. And by good, I mean they don't feel good. So happiness is not one of those. That one feels good, we're happy to let it be. But fear, sort of nausea, depression, sadness, a lot of times we don't want those feelings. I know anxiety is not a comfortable feeling. You have the fight or flight situation and you, your body feels like there's a problem that needs to be solved. With A, acknowledge we are not pushing the feeling away. You accept the feeling and allow it to be there. Put another way, you give yourself permission to feel it. 
you remind yourself that you don't have the power to successfully declare, I shouldn't have such hateful feelings about a friend, or I've got to be less sensitive. Sometimes I ask students to imagine each thought and emotion as a visitor knocking at the door of their house. The thoughts don't live there. You can greet them, acknowledge them, and watch them go. Rather than trying to dismiss anger and self-judgment as bad or wrong, simply rename them as painful. This is the entry into self-compassion. You see your thoughts and emotions arise and create space for them, even if they are uncomfortable. You don't take hold of your anger and fixate on it, nor do you treat it as an enemy to be suppressed. It can simply be. So this, I think this is good advice. It's not always easy, right? I think for myself with anxiety, for people who know the sort of barrage of uncomfortable and anxious thoughts you get with OCD, it's not easy to sit with something that is causing you so much pain. Right? I've had moments like this where I'm sitting down, I'm on the cushion, I get a thought, something scares me, and I'm so, so uncomfortable, I just want to jump out of my skin. In these moments, it is hard to practice this kind of advice. But I don't really know what the alternative is. Obviously, the alternative would be turning on the TV, going to the kitchen, eating a lot of food. Or maybe less self-destructive going for a run or doing some yoga or doing some exercise. This is sort of different, right? Instead of trying to get rid of the feeling, we're sort of welcoming it in. As she uses this metaphor of visitors to your home. It's nice also to not have the pressure to not have these feelings. Like she says, you don't have to say to yourself, I got to be less sensitive. When the anxiety comes, you don't have to say to yourself, this is wrong, this is bad, I don't want this, how can I get rid of it? That puts a lot of pressure on you to try to fix a problem. And also, I don't really know how you do that successfully. So if you can allow yourself to say like, okay, I am feeling bad right now, this is hard. That maybe can be a useful way for dealing with feelings. And as she says, it opens the door to self-compassion. When you recognize that you're having a hard time, maybe you're nice, nicer to yourself. Maybe you're not saying, oh, I have anxiety and therefore I'm weak or bad or stupid. Um, I can't handle these feelings, therefore I'm not good enough. You know, no, you recognize that what you're going through is difficult. You know, maybe in this moment you need some extra care. I is investigate. So I'm reading from the book now. Now you begin to ask questions and explore your emotions with a sense of openness and curiosity. This feels quite different from when we are fueled by obsessiveness or by a desire for answers or blame. When we're caught up in a reaction, it's easy to fixate on the trigger and say to ourselves, I'm so mad at so-and-so that I'm going to tell everyone what he did and destroy him, rather than examining the emotion itself. There is so much freedom in allowing ourselves to cultivate curiosity and move closer to a feeling, rather than away from it. We might explore how the feeling manifests itself in our bodies, and also look at what the feeling contains. Many strong emotions are actually intricate tapestries woven of various strands. Anger, for example, commonly includes moments of sadness, helplessness, and fear. As we get closer to it, an uncomfortable emotion becomes less opaque and solid. Remember that progress doesn't mean that the negative emotions don't come up. So I think there's a few important points here. One is 
that we're not trying to get rid of an emotion. In the case of anxiety, when we show ourselves and we show our bodies that it's okay to live in the moment with the anxiety, then perhaps we're teaching our overactive amygdalas that they don't need to be so concerned with our well-being. By showing them that we are not trying to fix a problem or change a situation, maybe we are helping to cut out this feedback loop uh, that continually tells our amygdala, yes, thank you for showing me the fearful environment. I know that this is not right. I'm going to try to get rid of it. Right? This does the opposite. We welcome it in. We welcome in the fear. I think another important point that she makes is this, this quote, many strong emotions are actually intricate tapestries woven of various strands. For most of my life, my dominant emotion has been anxiety, and it's been this sort of opaque, solid thing that I haven't been able to look into. But in unraveling anxiety, there's a lot of sadness in there. And I got to tell you, when I can unravel the anxiety and find the sort of sweet blanket of sadness and maybe have a have a nice cry, it feels a lot better than feeling afraid. Okay, N is the last letter, non-identify. In the final step of RAIN, we consciously avoid being defined by, identified with a particular feeling, even as we may engage with it. Feeling angry with a particular person in a particular conversation about a particular situation is very different from telling yourself, I am an angry person and always will be. You permit yourself to see your own anger, your own fear, your own resentment, whatever is there, and instead of spiraling down into judgment, I'm such a terrible person, you make a gentle observation. Oh, this is a state of suffering. This opens the door to a compassionate relationship with yourself, which is the real foundation of a compassionate relationship with others. Right? So you can be angry without being an angry person. You can be anxious without calling yourself a scaredy cat. You don't necessarily need to own your thoughts, right? Or your feelings. A lot of them are, are autonomous, right? Thoughts and feelings, they pop into our heads and into our bodies. So we don't necessarily have to identify with them. We don't have to be the thoughts. We don't have to wrap our self-image up with them, even if they're present all the time. And then what she says at the end, a compassionate relationship with yourself is the real foundation of a compassionate relationship with others. Right, so this book is about love. You would think that this book is, is about how to love other people. But her thesis is, you know, love yourself, you'll be able to love others. I think it's not a terrible idea. You know, through meditation, I've been able to notice that I'm very, very quick to judge other people. And also, I'm very quick to judge myself. I'm constantly evaluating my actions and behaviors to see if they measure up. Perhaps if I was more compassionate towards myself, I could recognize that feeling and extend it to other people. Maybe it'd be easier to love other people if I know how to love myself because maybe I just have more practice. And the final paragraph here says, We cannot will what thoughts and feelings arise in us, but we can recognize them as they are, sometimes recurring, sometimes frustrating, sometimes filled with fantasy, many times painful, always changing. By allowing ourselves this simple recognition, we begin to accept that we will never be able to control our experiences, but that we can transform our relationship to them. This changes everything. Another thing that is important that I haven't mentioned as much is this loving-kindness meditation. You can find them online. Just Google loving-kindness meditation. It's this practice where 
You wish love, kindness, safety, peace, well-being, acceptance for yourself amongst a whole cast of characters, including people in your life that are easy to love, difficult to love, neutral people like bank tellers, and then maybe all the people in your apartment building or neighborhood or world. I think it has helped me in a few specific instances when I've had ill will towards people at work. Practicing the loving kindness meditation has made me a little more empathetic and to see these people not merely as sort of obstacles in my path, but also people who are trying to be happy themselves, who are doing the best that they can. I think it's also helped me with romantic partners, both both past and present, to see them less as, you know, ends in my search for companionship and more as people just like me navigating a difficult world. It allows me to see them as humans that have their own troubles and and issues instead of just means on my path to finding, you know, love and companionship. Here's a quote. Recognizing that everyone else is a person trying to be happy, not just a character in the stories in our heads, not just existing in relation to our own desires. That was the book, basically. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I hope to fold some of what it said into my own practice and into my life. So that's uh, Real Love by Sharon Salzberg. Thanks for listening.